The information provided in this show is intended for your general knowledge only and is not intended to be, nor is it, medical advice or a substitute for medical advice. If you have or suspect you have a specific medical condition or disease, please consult your health care provider. You are now listening to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs> What's up, health heroes? Tim James here, founder of ChemicalFreeBody.com and your host, for the show that defends public health by simplifying and demystifying how to live an energetic life with a flat belly. So if you're into freedom, a healthy gut, and staying young, this is the show for you. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here with another exciting episode of the Health Hero Show. Today in the house, I've got Sandor Katz. Uh, We're going to be talking everything, recipes, techniques, and the traditions of fermentation from literally around the world. This guy has fermented everything you could possibly think of. I just had a nice little chat with him um, pre-podcast here. And I got to tell you, I'm very excited about this because, you know, when it comes to gut health, um, we have had, we have all these bacteria or we should have all these bacteria in our, in our gut. And a lot of them are getting wiped out from stress. Uh, they get wiped out from alcohol. Um, and especially getting wiped out from things like penicillin and antibiotics. Antibiotics are really tough on the gastrointestinal tract. So all these, a lot of these microbes um, that are very beneficial and necessary to human life and for us to be able to wake up and feel good and have an abundant, healthy, vibrant life are just gone. So fermentation is something that you can do at home that is um, very fun, actually. Um, when you do it right, you don't mess up a batch. That's part of the learning process. But um, it's also something that you can do to get involved with your family, involved with your children and and community as well. Right. It's just like, you know, when I was growing up, there was, um, you know, we'd all get together with the family and like, you know, if we had a big bumper crop of cucumbers, then we would all, you know, pickle the pickles and we would do that together. Or if we caught a bunch of kokanee, um, which is a landlocked salmon uh, deal, uh, we would can those and we'd do it all together. And it's just like this bonding experience. And. We're kind of literally getting back to our roots and fermentation is like that. It's something you can do with your family, develop good relationships with your kids, bond with your wife, your spouse, your husband, and your community. I think it's a wonderful thing. You can do all this stuff while you're creating these foods that are loaded with these beneficial bacteria that can recolonize the gut, boost your immune system, and help you wake up and feel good. So Sander, Katz, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, this is awesome. This is awesome. I know, dude, when I first got back from uh, my, my beginning of my journey was at the Hippocrates Health Institute in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you familiar with that place? I've heard of it, sure. Yeah, so they had they were big on fermentation, and they said we should be doing it. And, and they said that, you know, pre-meal, we should eat, you know, a tablespoon or two heaping tablespoons of raw fermented sauerkraut, chew that sauerkraut very, very, very well. And then um, by doing that, we were preloading our um, digestive tract with like enzymes to help aid digestion. Now, they did say this, that if somebody has, and I hear a little disclaimer, if somebody has a yeast infection, maybe you can, you know, talk about this too, um, then they would, you know, have a little tiny bit or none at all in the beginning until they had balanced their body and took care of that yeast, whether it's candida or something like that. But anyway, man, so... um, really excited to have you on. So why don't you just give us a little bit about your, your, your backstory, um, who you are and how the heck you got into from, from fermentation, everything around the world. 
Well, sure. So, um, you know, like almost every individual in almost every part of the world, I grew up eating and drinking products of fermentation. I mean, you know, fermentation is not necessarily health food. I mean, you know, all, all food involves fermentation. You know, bread is fermented, chocolate is fermented, coffee is fermented, beer and wine are fermented, cheese is fermented, cured meats are fermented, condiments are fermented. I mean, it would be very hard for most people to get through a day without, um, you know, eating or drinking any products of fermentation. They're so integral to our diet. Fermentation is practiced everywhere. There's, uh, you know, there's nothing we can possibly eat they cannot be fermented and you know my my idea about why fermentation is practiced so universally is the simple reality that's become evident that you know all of the uh, plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms and there's a certain inevitability to microbial transformation but anyway I grew up eating certain uh, 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 products of fermentation and as a kid I just loved pickles I wasn't thinking about how they were made, but the pickles my family ate and, you know, my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, we were eating what I now know were fermented cucumbers and I was very drawn to the flavor of the fermented cucumbers and, and you know, flavor was the first thing that drew me in. Um, then when I was in my mid-20s, I spent a couple of years following a macrobiotic diet. And although a macrobiotic diet is, you know, really quite different than the kind of diet that you would be exposed to at the Hippocrates Institute, um, it too emphasizes the digestive benefit of live fermented foods. And, you know, I got into a habit of seeking out these foods and trying to eat them with every meal. Um, and it and I found that it did promote good digestion. And I noticed that these pickles that I had been eating my entire life, whenever I would eat them, I could feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva. And I really began to associate these foods in a very uh, tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing. But really, like the catalyst for me jumping into fermentation, learning how to ferment, is that uh, 29 years ago in 1993, I moved from New York City, where I was born and raised, to rural Tennessee, where I've lived ever since. And the first year, and, and I started gardening. And the first year that I had a garden, I mean, I was such a naive city kid, it had never occurred to me that in a garden, all of the cabbages would be ready at about the same time, and all of the radishes would be ready at about the same time, and all of the cucumbers would be ready at about the same time. So when I was faced with this rather obvious reality of agricultural production, I had a practical reason. Um, you know, I had a nice bed of cabbage and, uh, you know, basically I had this epiphany like, oh my God, that has something to do, uh, sauerkraut has something to do with preserving cabbage. And so I learned how to make sauerkraut, you know, not because I love the way it tastes, which I do, and not because I love the way it makes me feel, which I do, but because I had this practical necessity to figure out how to preserve a nice crop of cabbages. And, um, and then, you know, from there, I just completely went down the rabbit hole. I learned how to make uh, uh, yogurt. I learned how to make country wines. I started a sourdough starter. Uh, I started exploring fermentation traditions in different places and experimenting. Um, and, um, you know, today I call myself a fermentation revivalist. And, um, you know, I've really, uh, you know, spent the last more than 20 years, uh, you know, trying to demystify fermentation for people and, you know, help people feel confident fermenting at home.
Yeah, you've obviously you're really into it. I noticed that um, you're actually holding fermentation events all over the world. You're kind of booked out all over the place. You were in Iceland and Tennessee, New Jersey. Um, you were in the UK, uh, Vermont, just Chicago. You kind of go all over. It seems like there there's kind of a demand for what you're doing, right? I mean, there is interest in fermentation everywhere. Now, what I would say is that, you know, products of fermentation, you know, the foods and beverages produced by fermentation, whether we're talking sauerkraut or yogurt, whether we're talking bread or cheese, whether we're talking beer or wine, whether we're talking coffee or chocolate, you know, these products of fermentation really have enjoyed in enduring popularity. And, you know, all of these foods were as popular in the times of our great grandparents as they are today. You know, what's different is that more people uh, today are thinking and talking about fermentation and seeking out fermented foods and beverages, um, you know, mostly because we have come to recognize how important bacteria are. You know, for those of us who grew up in the 20th century, you know, we never heard a good word about bacteria. We never heard that, you know, they were essential to our effective functioning, um, you know, that all life is descended from bacteria and no multicellular form of life has ever lived without bacteria. You know, we just never heard any of that. But, you know, I would I would date it to the Human Microbiome Project. But really, ever since then, there's been a growing recognition of the importance of bacteria to our well-being and, you know, people seeking out live products of fermentation as a strategy to increase biodiversity in the gut. Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's, um, I was just thinking about when when you're traveling around and you're talking to people because you just kind of like, I mean. I'm pretty, you know, open-minded and kind of involved in a lot of this stuff, but I was just thinking like, wow, every, you just kind of opened my eyes. Like everything's fermented. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, like I mean, there's so the many time. things that are fermented. I was just thinking it's not just sauerkraut and kimchi, you know, and tempeh, which is some of the things I, you know, I think about focusing on. These are like new foods to me um, as of 12 years ago, but I've been eating fermented foods all my life. I think it's just maybe, the quality of the fermented foods is the big difference. Yeah, sure. I mean, but, but I mean, you know, there exist very high quality cheeses. There exists very high quality breads. You know, people can learn to make very high quality breads. You know, I've met celiac people who do a long sourdough fermentation and are able to eat wheat breads, you know, because they are properly fermented and the fermentation breaks down gluten. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, I, I mean, every, every food can be fermented in, in, you know, w ways that result in a higher quality product or ways that result in a lower quality product, you know, depending on, you know, what kind of ingredients you use, depending on timing, depending on whether you use what, what I would describe as a pure culture starter, a singular microorganism, which is a 20th century departure from the history of fermentation, which has always involved broad communities of organisms. So, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, like any kind of food, there's a lot of qualitative distinctions to be made. You know, a, a type of food is not intrinsically good or bad. It all has to do with the quality of the ingredients and and how it's done. Okay, so do you do you know the history of fermentation, like in in, in regards to like 
did it get started simply because people had bumper crops and they didn't want the crops to go bad, so they figured out a way to can them? Or do you think no. it was like they started well, okay, for doing so, it for health purposes? So first of all, canning is a whole different thing. Canning is a 200-year-old technology invented by a Frenchman named Nicolas Apert at the beginning of the 19th century. So canning is like a whole different thing. Canning is sterilizing food inside of a jar. And, and in a way, we could think of it as the diametrical uh, opposite of, of, of fermentation. The, you know, nobody knows the history of fermentation because it's so ancient. It predates recorded history. It predates writing. Um, but, you know, depending on how we define fermentation, the way a biologist would define fermentation is anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen. In that sense, like all of the thinking about, you know, the, the evolution of life on the earth, the earliest organisms that existed were fermenting organisms. And so you could say that, you know, fermentation spawned us and all multicellular life forms. But if you want to think about it in terms of like, you know, human beings practicing fermentation, what I can tell you is that the oldest existing archaeological record of fermentation dates back about 10,000 years to a site in China. And they found pottery shards with residue of alcohol, and they've been able to reverse engineer what the ingredients in that alcohol were. But I mean, I would say that really only tells us about the history of pottery, because presumably the earlier vessels that people were using are all made out of biodegradable degradable materials, which would no longer uh, uh, exist. Um, I think it's safe to assume that the earliest intentional practice of fermentation had to do with the production of alcohol. Um, you know, the production of alcohol is by far the most widespread form of fermentation. Um, you know, although, you know, many people such as yourself might have a critique of the, you know, ways in which drinking a lot of alcohol can impact upon our health. It seems like we have a sort of universal desire to alter ourselves and um, um, you know alcohol is very appealing to people and um, you know in every part of the world people have figured out techniques to turn you know every carbohydrate source you could imagine into alcoholic beverages and so yeah. that's the most widespread and presumably the most ancient form of fermentation but I mean preserving food is another really important benefit of fermentation and you know, all of the traditions of fermenting vegetables, all of the traditions of fermenting meat, all of the traditions of uh, um, uh, uh, fermenting uh, uh, milk, um, you know, these are all driven by the necessity to extend the life of highly perishable food resources. Makes sense, man. I'm just thinking too, I don't know how far back it goes, but you know, um, Alcohol was also used during battle and war times as an antiseptic, right? Sure, sure. And also in a lot of places where, um, you know, water supplies were making people sick, um, you know, drinking lightly fermented alcoholic beverages, the small amount of alcohol would have the benefit of, you know, killing whatever kinds of pathogenic bacteria were in the water making people sick. So, you know, light alcohol has been associated for many hundreds of years with safe drinking. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, man, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, um, we'll get into more deeper discussions on fermentation when we return. We'll be right back. The average person today is carrying around 6 to 12 pounds of impacted fecal material and mucoid plaque in the small and large intestine. That's gross, but worse, it's super unhealthy. That is why we created Gut Detox Formula. 
This ancient 1,000-year-old formula from India gently micro-cleanses the intestines, removing all of that funk and gunk and junk that is destroying your health while leaving your good bacteria behind, which is part of your immune system. And there is no diarrhea like most gut detox products, and it's made with the same chemical-free body promise, no stimulants, 100% nature, and always made in the USA. Get yours today at chemicalfreebody.com. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. I'm back with Sandor Katz, the super god of fermentation. So glad to have you on here today, dude, because fermentation is a really cool subject. And um, I hope that the listeners will, you know, get into it. That's what I'm going to prompt you to do um, towards the end, because it's kind of like I said, it's fun. And there's some just amazing thing when you make your own food and you create something, it's very empowering. And it's just one more thing to realize that you don't need other, you know, we need people and everything, but you don't need a grocery store. You can do this stuff yourself and make it a hundred times better. And and I've always learned that anytime you invest in yourself in any fashion, you're going to get about a 6 to 10x return. So why wouldn't you invest in yourself? And one way you can invest in yourself is in your food. And fermentation definitely fits the bill. So I was going to ask you, uh, Sander, how long does fermentation preserve food? So how long can somebody anticipate that? Well, it all depends on it all depends on temperature, really. Um, you know, once I was visiting a farm in northern Vermont, and the farmer disappeared into his root cellar, and he brought out three-year-old kraut that had never been in a refrigerator. Um, but he had he had a nice deep root cellar that stayed the center of the uh, the it stayed the temperature of the earth you know, all summer and all winter. And, um, you know, the, I would not have been able to tell the difference between that three-year-old kraut and, you know, a, and, a, and a one-month-old kraut. I mean, it just, you know, reaches a, 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 a level of um, acidity uh, and it's salty and it's at a moderate temperature where it can just plateau pretty much indefinitely. Where I live, I, I really, I, I make a big batch every November. And actually, as it happens just earlier this morning, I emptied out the last of my um, big vessel because, you know, once we get, um, uh, um, you know, long periods of consistently hot weather, the cellar where I keep it just gets warmer. And it doesn't, it doesn't make the sauerkraut dangerous to eat. What it does is it turns it into mush. There are enzymes and vegetables that break down the pectins, and uh, you know eventually, at a long te- at, 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 a, at a high temperature, um, um, you, you know you lose all of the crispiness of the vegetables, and it'll just turn into mush. And personally, I find that very unappealing. So I like to get whatever I have left by this time of year into the refrigerator, um, where it'll last much longer. So I mean, so there's no. Does, if somebody has a root cellar, right? Yeah. If they don't have a root cellar, can they just keep it in a fridge or an extra fridge in their garage? Yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. No, I mean, I think for most people, just making making small batches for their families, that's the way to do it. Is just you know make make a couple of quarts or a gallon at a time. You know, once it tastes good to you, get it in the refrigerator, and it'll really last indefinitely uh, 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 in the refrigerator. But hopefully, you're going to like it so much and you know, learn how to incorporate it into, into your meals every day that, you know, you'll finish it in a few weeks and need to make some more. Okay. You know, so, what we have to recognize is that, you know, this has been a survival food for, 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 for people, you know, sauerkraut has been 
an important food in you know the northern tiers of the Eurasian landmass, and um, you know it, it, it's 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 most important in places with short growing seasons and long periods where there's no fresh vegetable food, and you know it's been recognizing it's been recognized basically that sauerkraut conquered scurvy. Um, uh, 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 because, you know, vitamin C that's only found in plant source food that in some places in the world, just there are, you know, months of the year where they're not available, uh, where, where fresh vegetables are not, or, or fruits are not available at all. Um, and so, you know, this food has been a, a survival food. And so. Are you talking about places like the, Mongolia? Yeah, sure. I'm talking about Mongolia. I'm talking about Russia. I'm talking about parts of Germany. Um, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of different places in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so people would put up long, but large amounts for long periods of time. But, you know, if you're, let's say, you know, I, I, let's say you're, you live in California in 2022, you know, your sauerkraut is not a survival food. You're, you're making it because you want the delicious flavor of it. You want the benefit of the probiotic bacteria, um, uh, um, you know, you're trying to eat more fiber in your diet, like, you know, all the all the all these laudable reasons. But, you know, you, there's no need to, to you know, the, the vegetables you're making it out of are not the last vegetables you're going to see for the next eight months. And you don't need to make huge batches and 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 store them for long periods of time. You can make very modest sized batches out of one or two cabbages, add other vegetables if you like. Um, and then, you know, once, once it's achieved a level of acidity that you like, the, the acidity accumulates over time, then you can store it in the refrigerator indefinitely. Hmm. So you travel all around the world. You're talking to all these people. You're doing these talks, these probably, um, are you actually doing classes where you're hands-on, you're making it? Yeah. I mean, so sometimes, I mean, I, I do all kinds of presentations. I, you know, just talk to people about it. I do a lot of hands-on things. It, it varies with the venues. Okay, perfect. So you're talking to people all over the world. Can you tell us like when people come up to you, what are they telling you the reasons why they're sprouting? Why are, why, why is the general public sprouting? What, what's getting them into it? The top, maybe one, okay. two, three reasons. So sprouting is not usually what I'm talking to people about. I meant for fermentation. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just a, I'm I'm a sprout fanatic, and it just falls out of my mouth. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, I, I enjoy sprouting too, and 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 you know, especially in the realm of making alcohol out of grains, sprouting is critically important. Uh, uh, they call it malting in a brewing context, but but anyway, that that that's not our focus right now. But I mean, people get interested in fermentation for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I would say number one is the reason that you're primarily interested in it, which is the the health benefits. And um, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of potential benefits to to fermented foods. Uh, you know, they the fermentation pre-digests nutrients and makes certain nutrients that might otherwise not be bioavailable to us more easily bioavailable. So, you know, often by fermenting a food, we can get more nutrition out of the food. Uh, fermentation generates, um, um, you know, various metabolic byproducts, some of which have been found to have extraordinary benefit for us. So, for instance, there are compounds called isothiocyanates that are present in, in sauerkraut and other types of fermented vegetables that are generated during the fermentation as byproducts of, of the process. And, you know, they're regarded as anti-carcinogenic uh, uh, compounds. But, you know, to me, the most... Um, 
profound potential benefit of fermentation is the one that you highlighted uh, in the introduction, which is, you know, the, the, the presence of broad communities of live bacteria. You know, these, these bacteria are what we could call probiotic and, you know, they, they offer us many potential benefits. I mean, I, I've heard from, you know, hundreds of people who I've talked to that, you know, they lived for many years with some kind of chronic digestive problem and they started incorporating live culture fermented foods into their diet and, and they found that their digestion improved. Um, so digestion is a big one. Immune function is another one. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, eating bacteria-rich foods stimulates the, the immune system. Um, and then we're just learning that almost every system of our bodies, the, the, the biochemistry ties into bacteria in the gut. So for instance, serotonin and other chemical compounds that determine our brain function, how we feel and how we think. Are, are, are regulated in ways that are not fully understood by bacteria in our gut. So, you know, diversifying bacteria in the gut by, you know, eating a variety of bacteria-rich foods, you know, can be a really excellent strategy for, um, you know, improving our health in, in many different ways. Now, that said, I mean, I will say that I have, you know, I have encountered people making you know, unsubstantiated claims on behalf of particular fermented foods. You know, if you, you know, if you eat this, this food or you drink this food every day, it'll reverse the aging process and, you know, prevent your hair from going gray and turn you into Superman. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, people have to be sensible and recognize that not everything everybody says is true, but, you know, that doesn't mean that these foods like are not profoundly beneficial. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing them. For forever as far back as we can see and there's a reason for it like many reasons so basically number one reason people are fermenting is the health benefits um the you know the bacteria the increasing nutrition that kind of stuff um some people are probably doing it just others? for what's that oh I, I i could talk about some of the others yeah go ahead yeah yeah sure so i mean flavor you know, fermentation just creates extraordinary flavors. And, you know, if you walk into a gourmet food store, most of what you're going to find are products of fermentation because fermentation creates strong flavors. And, um, you know, some of the flavors of fermentation are what we would call acquired taste. But, you know, once you acquire the taste for some kind of specific fermented food or beverage, like nothing else is like it. And so people tend to become very devoted to uh, uh, fermented foods and, 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 and beverages. And, you know, today, you know, there's a huge explosion of chefs in fine dining restaurants um, uh, incorporating fermentation, you know, into what they're doing in the restaurants because the chefs have recognized that it's a way to create really unique signature flavors uh, that, 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 that can be their own. So flavor is another one. Um, cultural reasons. I mean, I meet so many people who have some memory of, you know, a grandparent who kept a vinegar cask or made sauerkraut every year or, you know, made a batch of wine every fall. But, you, you know, a lot of people, um, are, you know, are trying to reestablish some sort of a family tradition that fell by the wayside at some point. I, I meet a lot of immigrants who, you know, talk about fermented foods that were prominent in the places that they came from um, and are interested in maybe you know, learning how to do them themselves to, to um, you know, sort of continue uh, 
a cultural tradition from 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 a place that they've uh, that that they've left. So, um, uh, and, and then I also meet people who are you know farmers or gardeners who have this sort of you know practical interest in uh, you know preserving the crops. So you know there are so many different reasons that that bring people to fermentation. Um, you know, and then and then also you know I mean in terms of nutrition, I mean. You know, people from every imaginable, uh, you know, dietary ideology, um, um, you, you know, come to fermentation as a way to, um, you know, get more nutrients out of whatever food they're, 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 they're eating. So, I mean, I think there's just so many reasons uh, uh, for people to be interested in this. Yeah, man, that's really awesome stuff. I'm just thinking about... Um... Uh, the cultural reasons I even bef way before I got into all this health stuff, I remember hearing a story one time about this lady and it was a sourdough sourdough starter that had been handed down from like their great grandma. It's saying this thing had been going on for like 80 years or something like that. Like it was a and it, it, it moved from Nebraska. And then when they came out, she took a chunk of it from her mom that got from her grandma and then the family's really into it and they keep it going. It's like a, a big deal. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these things really are, you know, treasured family heirlooms. And, you know, and, and if you can get the next generation interested in them, then, you know, then there's no reason that they can't go on for hundreds of years uh, uh, longer. So, you know, so that's, that, 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 that's amazing. I mean, I love meeting people with these sort of old family sourdoughs, family yogurt cultures, um, but you take and, that with home with you, don't you? you? Give me some of that. We'll try that. Yeah, out. yeah, sure, sure. Well, you know, I was I started my sourdough starter myself about 25 years ago, and I've maintained it. But through the years, I've met quite a few people who have gifted me with bits of their, you know, family heirloom sourdough starters. So, um, you know, I, I always incorporate those into mine. So. You know, oh, that's mine, cool. So you I, have this I, I multiverse, started, but, I, but it's been fortified. It's a multiverse. That's a great way of putting it. But it's been fortified by you know all these other lineages. Well, it looks like I'm going to have to go to Tennessee and scrape a chunk of that off there and get it going, my friend. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Um, well, let's do this. We'll take another quick break, and then when we get back, um, I, I kind of want to just kind of get into some some of the basics for beginners because i'm assuming um which is probably correct is that most of the people listening here you may have you're eating fermented foods but you probably haven't made them yourself so when we get back we'll start getting into some of the basics of fermentation how you introduce these bacteria into the fermentation do they naturally occur and um, sandra will answer all those questions when we return we'll be right back Turmeric has been used for thousands of years all across India and Southeast Asia and is one of the best anti-inflammatory compounds on earth. Now you can get these incredible benefits with the new chemical-free body Turmeric 100 liquid drops. This ethically sourced breakthrough solution absorbs over 100 times better than regular turmeric products, eliminating the need to add black pepper. Turmeric 100 helps against inflammation and pain and is made with the same chemical-free body promise. No stimulants, 100% natural, and always made in the USA. Get yours today at chemicalfreebody.com. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. I am back, and I'm with Sandor Katz. He is one of the world experts on wild fermentation. He's 
he's been fermenting everything. He's got some great, great strains. Um, I'm going to see if the end of this, I can talk him into coming to Tennessee one of these days and checking out his operation. Cause that sounds really cool. And so, um, if we just get into the basics, man, like let's say somebody's getting started and they're like, you know, cause I know like with sprouting, when people get started like me, um, fail, fail, fail. I had a bunch of fails. I got the wrong seeds and the wrong this and that. And then when I got into fermentation, you know, they were like, Oh, you need a Gartoff pot. So I, I bought one of those and I got another one. And I mean, I failed a few batches. I didn't really know what I was doing, trying to learn it. And it's where it's really important to have apprenticeship and mastery from somebody like yourself just to make it happen. Right. You know, and make it so you don't fail and get frustrated and get some success right out of the gate. So for somebody that's new, and they're just getting started. What would you suggest they do? Okay, well, first of all, let me address like the big anxiety that I think that most people have about this. Um, and that is, you know, we, we all, you know, I mean, pretty much everyone who's alive at this point, uh, especially if you grew up in the United States, um, um, you know, is at some level afraid of bacteria. You know, we heard all our lives how dangerous bacteria are, um, you know, how important it is to avoid them. And when we do have the misfortune of encountering them, we have all these chemical products that we can use to um, exterminate them. Um, and so, you know, when, when, when this is, you know, sort of the indoctrination about bacteria that, that you have, it's very easy to project, you know, all of our anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of cultivating bacteria in a jar. And um, the first time I ever taught a sauerkraut making workshop, which was in 1998, um, you know, one of the students held up a jar of the vegetables we had just shredded and salted, and she looked at it with a horrified look on her face. And she said, you know, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in here and not some dangerous bacteria that might make me sick or even kill somebody? And I think that it's very common for people to project this kind of anxiety onto the idea of, of fermentation. But, you know, I just want to start out by you know, assuring you and, uh, and your podcast listeners that fermentation is above all else, a strategy for safety. In the realm of fermenting vegetables, there's virtually no case history anywhere in the world of food poisoning or illness from fermenting vegetables. I mean, the process, statistically speaking, the process of fermentation makes the vegetables safer than they are when they are raw. Um, and this is because, you know, once you create the conditions of the fermentation and, you know, in the case of fermenting vegetables, it's very simple. I mean, being submerged under liquid, then the bacteria that will dominate every single time are lactic acid bacteria. They're anaerobic. They don't require oxygen. Um, uh, as they acidify the environment, if there happen to be some cells of salmonella or E. coli or, you know, other organisms we, we might worry about from a food poisoning uh, standpoint, they're destroyed by the acidity. Like acidifying foods through fermentation is intrinsically uh, uh, protective of, of, of our safety because it knocks out all of the organisms that we would regard as, as, as pathogenic. Um, well, let's, so let, let's tie that down for a second because um, one thing that I know that works really well to kill bacteria topically, like all day long, is garlic oil. You can take garlic, take fresh pressed garlic, press it, and then add like one part fresh pressed garlic, organic, and two thirds, two parts like uh, 
like let's say a carrier or like olive oil, mix it together, let it stand for 30 minutes and kind of let it blend because garlic is very caustic. It's very acidic, like you just mentioned. It's a 3.3 on the, on the pH scale, so it's highly acidic. And what happens is I saw it under a microscope, bacteria just from the gas of the garlic, 100% kill zone on all these quote unquote bad bacteria. But the cool thing is, is it doesn't kill the good bacteria. And that's a very important point. So what I'm gathering here is that the fermentation process is doing the same thing. It creates this acid state, which kills the bad bacteria like the E. coli's and the salmonellas that are bred from like, you know, poor animal husbandry situations and keeps the good intact. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, well, I mean, I try to stay away with from words like good or bad about bacteria. I mean, honestly, our you know, our knowledge and understanding of bacteria is in its infancy. And that, you know, mm -hmm. I personally believe that, you know, there are not bad forms of life and good forms of life. There exist forms of life that could be dangerous to us. There may exist bacteria, which, you know, we have associated with some kind of health problem. I mean, there, there's a famous example of uh, um, uh, H. pylori, which, which, you know, a lot of medications target it because it was thought to be associated with stomach ulcers. And, you know, now there's a lot of thinking that it has something to do with regulating our sort of use versus storage of energy and that our entire obesity crisis might have something to do with the fact that, you know, we targeted this bacteria so heavily with, with medications because we had decided that it was bad, you know, on, on the basis of our extremely incomplete information. So I, I try to stay away from words like good. Well, maybe, maybe even E. coli and salmonella are good, but they just need to be in check. They got to be in a proper natural balance and yes, the antibiotics yes, and yes. the stress have thrown them out of balance. And, you know, then they proliferate and take over. That's what's happening with candida, which is a yeast. It's like we, we get knocked back with antibiotics and stress and all these things and penicillin. And then, you know, over consumption of processed sugars and all of a sudden then the candida takes over and it gets out of control. And because yeah. it was knocked out of balance, even though in small parts, it probably serves a vital function. It's part of the, the cog yeah. in the wheel of life. Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and so I just want to reassure everyone that, that you know, fermentation really is a strategy for, for, for safety. And, um, uh, you know, my fermentation practice began with sauerkraut, and I really recommend that as a perfect gateway into fermentation because it's, it's very straightforward. I mean, in about, in, in less than a minute, I can explain how you make sauerkraut. Um, um, you know, there, there, there's, there's really no case history of illness or food poisoning from sauerkraut. So it's about as safe as food gets. You can enjoy results in as soon as a week. Um, although I think that the flavor gets better and better if you can leave it to ferment a little bit longer. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's just so delicious and, and it's very easy to incorporate into your meals. I just had it with some eggs this morning for breakfast. I always put it on sandwiches. Mm -hmm. I would use it as a side dish with whatever I eat for dinner. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways you can do it. It just doesn't always have to be just cabbage and salt. You can embellish it in all kinds of ways, season it in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I just think that fermenting vegetables is the perfect way to start a fermentation process. It's about as wholesome as it gets. So since this is such an easy one to explain, let's just go quick little deep dive on sauerkraut. So what do you do? You get a head of Great. organic cabbage and shred it and walk us through the process. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, you know, you, so you've got your beautiful ceramic crocs. And if you want to do this at a larger scale, 
you know, by all means, you know, get a beautiful ceramic crock, but you know, you probably have a jar already sitting around in your house that you could do this in. Like you could use a mayonnaise jar, um, you know, a wide mouth canning jar is really easy because most people can fit their hand inside of it. Um, so, you know, let's say you have a quart size jar, a quart size jar will take about two pounds of vegetables to fill. And so, you know, th that could be all cabbage or you could use some cabbage and, you know, add a little bit of color by grating some carrot in there. You can um, uh, uh, season it any way you like with, you know, garlic or onion or I love caraway seeds. Some people like juniper berries. You can be very experimental. You, you People make curry krauts with curry seasonings. I mean, there's really no seasoning and no Limitless. other that you that you couldn't put in there. Um, so you shred your vegetables. You can shred them very finely or coarsely or unevenly. It really doesn't matter. The imperative is to create surface area because, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is pull some of the juice out of the vegetables so that we can get the vegetables submerged under their own juices. There's other styles of fermenting where you add some liquid and get them submerged under a saltwater brine solution which is fine. And if you want to ferment whole vegetables, you, you pretty much have to do that. But if you're shredding the vegetables, it's really easy to pull the juice out, especially if the vegetables are fresh. The fresher vegetables are, the juicier they are. So lightly salt them. Sometimes people imagine there's a magic number of how much salt you need to use. There's no magic number. I mean, there, there do exist some traditions in the world where people use no salt. Um, and there's a few health gurus around telling people to ferment with no salt. Um, I mean, you can do that. It'll, it'll never have as good of a texture. Like the salt is really imperative for texture uh, because salt, what, what makes vegetables crispy and crunchy are pectins. And in the short run, the salt hardens the pectins and makes the vegetables crispier. And in the long run, the salt slows down enzymes that break down the pectins. So it prevents the vegetables from getting mushy. But you don't need to make it very salty. I mean, you know, if you grew up in a family where your grandparents were making kraut and they learned from their grandparents, probably they make it very salty because, you know, the context for, you know, your grandparents' grandparents was survival. So the kraut they made if they lived in a part of the world where salt was uh, abundantly available was fairly salty because these might be the last vegetables people would see for six months. So they had a reason to use a lot of salt. If you're making this um, and, you know, you are a typical person in the United States or, or, or elsewhere listening to this podcast and, you know, it's 2022, you're probably not making your sauerkraut for survival through a long, harsh winter. You're probably making it, you know, more because you're interested in the health benefits or the flavor, uh, you know, or just getting more, more involved with producing food. Um, uh, and so, you know, you can use exceedingly small amounts of salt, but just salt to taste and bear in mind that it's always easier to add salt than it is to take salt away. So, so, so salt the vegetables. And when you say salt, I mean, we're usually, what, what kind of salt? Because we're trying to get a healthier salt, not just some cheap old iodized salt. Well, you know, the ironic thing is, I mean, sure, I, I love to use like, like just unrefined sea salt, which all has iodine in it, which is where they got the idea to add iodine to cheap table salt. The salt I use costs 10 to 100 times as much as the cheap table salt. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, sure, by all means, like use unrefined salt, but don't don't not do it because you don't have the right kind of salt and, and you don't want to spend that much money on salt. You 
can use whatever kind of salt you have. You can use kosher salt. You can use, you know, iodized table salt. Like the process will work no matter what. I, I've done, I've yeah. done probably a thousand demonstrations in front of people with whatever kind of salt people hand me, and the process always works. I, right. I mean, personally, I think unrefined salt is great because you know you get all those other minerals, but. Um, 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 uh, and the reason why table salt is so cheap is because they extract all those other minerals and then sell them to other industries and you're just getting the byproduct of that. Um, you know, but you don't need, fer fermentation does not need to be something, you know, precious and fancy. Yeah. You know, you can work with what's available to you. And people can get like pink, pink Himalayan salt pretty cheap nowadays. It's kind of a widespread yeah, yeah. deal. Salt, um, um, you know, uh, 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 the pink salt from Utah, from the from the dried the red, salt, red rates, salt. That's beautiful. Um, um, uh, you know, I also I, I love the gray salts from uh, um, uh, the, the Celtic sea salts. You know, any any kind of unrefined salt is great, but also in any kind of salt you have is adequate. Okay, so you just you get some sauerkraut or some cabbage, you chop it up fine, medium chunks. It doesn't matter. Get in there, get some surface area. Yeah, do you have to mash it up? Can you walk us through the yeah, process? Yeah. So, so the salt starts to pull juice out of the vegetables through, through the process of osmosis. And then you can speed that up. Like if you just leave the salted cabbage for a few hours, you'll find that it'll, 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 it'll have beads of water all over and a little puddle of water at the bottom. But the way you can speed that up is either by mashing or squeezing. I, I find on a small scale, just squeezing the vegetables for a few minutes works great. And so like I just sort of mix them, I mix them, toss them, and and yeah, squeeze them just like massaging kale. And after a few minutes, you'll just notice they're they're all getting juicy. And then I'll pick up a small handful and squeeze it like a wet sponge. And if juice comes out, then I know that when I pack them into my vessel, I'll be able to easily get the vegetables submerged under their own juices. Okay. So in a big bowl, you start there, you mash them up, throw a little salt in with the cabbage and then just in any flavors you want and any other vegetables you want to shred, mash them up till they get squishy. And then you start packing them in your quart jar as an example. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then pack, like really pack them in strenuously. You want to get the vegetables all packed in. You want to get rid of all the air pockets and you want a little bit of liquid rising at the top. Um, you know, weighting it down can be helpful. A lot of crocs come with a weight. You can buy little um, uh, glass weights these days, but you can also improvise with vegetables. What I'll often do is save one of the outer leaves of the cabbage with a heavy spine and use that spine like a little spring just to hold the vegetables definitively beneath the brine, which is what's protecting them from air and various kinds of aerobic life forms that can grow on the surface. Um, and then if anything's sticking up, it'll be that cabbage leaf. Uh, uh, you know, or whatever other kind of weight you you rig up, uh, mm -hmm. like a small um, river, a, a round river stone that's smooth is really nice. Stay away from jagged rocks, which might be uh, limestone, which could just dissolve in the acidity. Um, but smooth rocks generally are okay as weights. But you want to keep the vegetables submerged and then just wait. And then, you know, of course, the million dollar question is how long do I ferment it? When, what do you do? Do, do you, do you cap it? Do you put a cap on it? Yeah, I, what I usually do is I put a cap on loosely so that it can off gas mm -hmm. because it will build up some, some carbon dioxide if you sure. seal it firm 
internally, it'll build up some pressure in it. And, you know, that's one of the nice things about the style of croc you were talking about is the, the pressure sort of burps out through this, this waterlocked channel. But if you just seal it in a jar, just leave it, you know, leave it right on the counter where you'll see it every day. And then um, you can just manually release the pressure. And most of the pressure will be formed in the first few days. After that, the carbon dioxide production really slows down. Okay, so basically you don't have to add any bacteria to it. It's already got the bacteria in it. You're just culturing them and they're speeding up the process. Yeah. But have you that, actually that, added bacteria to any of these krauts or any types of fermentation? Well, any types of fermentation, sure, sure. Like, you know, when I make tempeh, I, you know, I, I add a starter. Um, okay. um, you know, certain, I mean, so pure culture starters, like, you know, in the case of tempeh, it's called Rhizopus oligosporus. Um, you know, that's really a 20th century invention. And, and um, um, you know, until then, all ferments involved broad communities of organisms, and most ferments uh, involved what I would call wild fermentation. And that's the title of my first book about fermentation. But I didn't make up this phrase, and it's used throughout the literature just to describe any kind of fermentation that's based on the organisms that are present on the food you're fermenting. So in the case of vegetables, I mean, all vegetables, actually beyond vegetables, all all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth are believed to be host to lactic acid bacteria. So there's no necessity to add a starter. I mean, there certainly are people who will try to sell you a starter, sure. um, but you know, there's no there's no necessity for a starter because you know the starter is on all vegetables. And you know, interesting fact: in the 1940s, the U.S. sauerkraut industry explored using a starter of Lactobacillus plantarum, which is generally what dominates in a mature sauerkraut. And they rejected the idea because they found that it resulted in a less complex flavor. That the flavor of, of, of sauerkraut is the accumulation of byproducts of different generations of, of lactic acid bacteria that develop in a successional uh, a way, and that it's the accumulation of the different fermentation byproducts of all those different bacteria that gives sauerkraut its flavor complexity, rather than just a singular organism that typically is dominant at the end of a long process. Okay, so we chop up our cabbage, whatever other veggies, our flavorings, we throw a little salt in there, it doesn't really matter what kind, how much. Um, you can pick and then you just mash it up or squeeze it till it's mushy. You pack it in real tight, throw a cabbage leaf over the top, yeah. put a little weight on there, a rock, and then you kind of loosely do it. And then you just let it sit there for seven days, 10 days. Well, this is the thing is it depends a lot on the temperature, like the warmer it is where you live or in your kitchen or wherever it is, the faster the process will go. Um, um, you know, another variable is some people like it very, very sour. Some people prefer it prefer it more mildly sour. What I would recommend for someone doing this for the first time is leave it on your kitchen counter and wait probably four or five days and then have a little taste of it after four or five days. But don't assume that the process is over. You're just getting a sense of how it's developing. Pack it back down, give it another three or four days, taste it again. And if you teach, if you keep tasting it at regular intervals, you'll really get a sense of the spectrum of flavors that are possible. And if one day you taste it and you think to yourself like, wow, the flavor is getting strong. I'm not sure I want it to get any stronger than this. 
Well, chances are you have a fermentation slowing device in your kitchen and that's your refrigerator. And you can move it to your refrigerator, which is something that, you know, our grandparents' grandparents did not have as an option. And, um, uh, and, 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 and then the fermentation will really just plateau from there. I mean, it will ever so slowly continue to acidify, but at a very, very slow rate. So, you know, some people in, you know, I mean, for me in, 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 in hot Tennessee in, in high summer when I ferment vegetables, I'm usually fermenting them for no more than a week and then getting them in the refrigerator. Um, you know, when I make it in November, I mean, what I just put in, in what, what I just took out of its vessel this morning was the last of a batch that I put up in November, and it's been in my cellar from November until July. That's awesome. Um, dude. Yeah, awesome. so it's been like you know almost eight months not in a refrigerator, but because it was in a cool place, mostly during cool weather. But I had to empty it now because if it went another month in the summer heat, it would just turn into baby food. You know what else? I mean, I just bought a track hoe to do some work here, here on the farm. And I, I just had an idea. I'm like, I'm going to build a freaking cellar. I'm going to dig, dig, dig a deep old hole and make myself a, a, a cellar. It's going to be cool. Awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, cellar, cellar is very practical way to extend the lives of the life of all kinds of foods. And it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> I mean, once you build it, but, um, <laughs> you don't have to run, you know, you don't have to put eight. There's no electricity in it. Okay. Yeah. Well, Cool, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and uh, where, do, where do people find you? Where, where, where's your website? So my website is wildfermentation.com. And um, you can find out about my, my books there. I've, I've written um, uh, several different how-to books about fermentation. Wild fermentation, which is what I would recommend for people just starting out on a fermentation journey. Um, uh, uh, the Art of Fermentation, which is a much more in-depth treatment. And my latest book is called Fermentation Journeys. And, you know, it's about foods and beverages that I've learned about in my travels around the world. So it's really a, like, a, like a look at global fermentation traditions. Um, you know, sauerkraut's a great place to start, but it doesn't have to be the end of the journey. It can just be the beginning. Um, you know, anything you could possibly eat can be fermented in a variety of different ways. Um, and it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very exciting, fun way to interact with food, to reconnect with cultural traditions, to, you know, improve your family's health. Um, and, you know, it's just got, it's got so many uh, wonderful benefits to recommend it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope that the listeners will take this to heart. Guys, this is a really powerful thing that you can do. You can make, you can make your own medicine at home. You can, you can heal your gut. Um, at some level with this stuff, um, feel better. And um, like I said, it's a great way to, to build community and build connections with your family. If you're looking for, you know, something where you've, your son or your daughter's, you know, stuck on a laptop or a cell phone and you can get them in the kitchen and you can start making some sauerkraut with them. And it's, it's a process, right? You got to go through it and you can harvest the cabbage or whatever, or buy a cabbage, chop it up. And you can make that first batch and four or five, 10 days later, you can have dinner with it. And uh, I guarantee you there's going to be smiles on their faces when they're eating their own food that they made. And you're actually really educating them on how to be self-sustainable, which is really cool. Um, so I think it's just a great thing. And for the beginners out there, make sure you go to wildfermentation.com. That's wildfermentation.com and get his book called wild fermentation. That's the beginner's manual and you'll have everything you need in there to get started. And then some and I would definitely recommend um, that you guys eventually get into making tempeh. 
And tempeh is something that really helped me as I was transitioning. Now, again, some of you listening are not going to want to transition completely, but it's, you know, lowering the amount of meat in the diet and raising the, the plant-based material seems to always be a good thing. You know, the blue zones, again, you know, the four common factors of these people that live to 100 years old. Um, you know, one of them was, um, you know, um, they have lifelong friends. That was number one. Number two was they respect their elders. Number three was an 80% plant-based diet or greater. So um, then number four was movement. You know, they move their bodies daily. So there's a recipe for success setting for you right there. And fermentation um, uh, falls right into that because it covers number one, um, which is, you know, lifelong friends and, and community. And then number three is if you can ferment uh, tempeh, which is could be a, from a grain, like maybe uh, or a seed like quinoa. Um, it could be chickpeas. You could ferment lentils or mung beans, some of my favorite. And you can have something that's kind of looks like, tastes like, and it's kind of meaty and it's freaking delicious. And you can mix it up with all kinds of stuff. You could even mix it with eggs or whatever, but it can be the, it could be the meat dish, even though there's no meat in it. So I think that um, fermentation could really be a game changer for you. And I think I was lucky enough to be introduced to Sandor um, a world expert in, in fermentation. So again, go to wildfermentation.com, pick up his book, Wild Fermentation for the Beginners. And if you want to do a little bit more advanced or just get it anyway, he's got his new book called Fermentation Journeys and he gets into fermenting all kinds of, you know, recipes and techniques from traditional stuff around the world. How cool is that? Like you can literally travel around the world by just getting that book and, and, and downloading everything that he did. So I like kind of stuff like that where somebody else is I'm a complete expert on it, and uh, I can go get that information from them, download it, and and save myself all the pain and suffering um, uh, that comes along with trying to figure things out from yourself. There was an old saying that said, wise man um, learns from others' mistakes, fools from their own, and uh, getting his book will definitely help you in the fermentation game. So again, Sandor, thank you so much for coming on, and I want to thank the listeners around the world. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing these episodes and, and promoting good health and being part of the ripple effect out there as we bring these amazing guests to you and these, these insights to your health and longevity and feeling good. And, and for those of you, if you're new and you're listening and you don't feel good, and, and that's exactly what we're here for. Um, besides the podcast, the educational component, you can go to chemicalfreebody.com on our website, and we have detox protocols for you. We've got products for you that are going to help you that are naturally occurring in nature um, that you can count on, right? That there's no garbage in the label. Um, and even if the labels, you know, the way they have these stupid labeling laws now, they can kind of skirt around them. You don't have to worry about that because I'm at the helm and I build this stuff for myself, right? So I, I'm on a mission to be as healthy and look as good and feel as good as I possibly can. And I, anything I find out that works, I'm going to share it with you guys. And then like meeting with people like Sandor here, because I've been fermenting for quite a while and, and I love it. I haven't taken it to the level he has, obviously, but um, it's really fun. Um, I'm making yogurts right now, uh, new probiotic yogurts and really enjoying the benefits of that. And I hope that you get into fermentation. So until next time, change yourself, change your world, and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening again to The Health Hero Show. I'm your host, Tim James. And remember, change yourself, change your world. And we'll see you again on the next episode. Talk to you soon. You have just listened to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. (laughs) 